Uh, we're going to go to Proverbs 27, so if you have your Bibles, go there. Proverbs 27, and we're getting close to the end uh, of our study through the book of Proverbs. We're going to actually finish it uh, in just about three weeks uh, on November the 13th. So uh, we are coming to the end of this. Proverbs 27, and we're going to talk today about watching your words. So anybody here ever say something you shouldn't have or stumble in? Okay, so this is kind of a universally necessary thing. We've talked several times over the course of the book of Proverbs about what comes out of our mouths. And that is on purpose. The book of Proverbs addresses us again and again on what comes out of our mouths. So this hopefully has an effect on how you talk this week and more so on the mindset about how we talk. So this week we saw the last of the presidential debates. I'm sure all of you watched that in its entirety, right? Every single one. Presidential debates. Now, this is the thing that's curious to me. Most people believe, just in general, not about a specific person, but just in general, believe that politicians tell less than the truth. (laughs) Yeah, it would be nice. It's church, so we'll be nice. They don't always tell us exactly the truth. Most people believe that. And yet, millions and millions of people watch a debate where what they're going to do is say something, and then what I'm going to say is, I don't believe it. Why do we do that? Why do we put ourselves through this? If I come with a presumption that they're not going to tell me the whole truth, or I'm not really going to be able to see the truth in what they say, then why do I do that? Here's why, and here's the point that Proverbs gets at with us today. Because words have a way of exposing what we think, sometimes even when we don't want them to. Sometimes even when we're in the middle of a lie to ourselves, words have a way of exposing what we think. Now, I think we overplay this in relationships sometimes and and even in politics sometimes. We overplay this because misspeaking is very common. Sometimes what comes out of my mouth is not what I really mean. It's the words that come out of my mouth. And so, but if somebody's going to nail me to the wall on that's what you said you know, then we're not really any more about communication. We're about litigation and we're about making sure that someone pays for what they've said. But if we are trying, even in the political season, if we're trying to hear what they say, what we really believe is that somewhere underneath, we're going to find out something that they believe. And and we kind of expand it. And so let me just in the political realm here, let me give you kind of both sides of this. And this is a personal opinion. So this isn't anything that you have to take, but I'm going to give you an illustration of this because I think we do the same thing in politics. For example, I think that when Donald Trump's talks about, you know, uh, we need to be Uh, I don't think he's a racist uh, in that way. I don't think he's saying we have to keep all of a certain race out. I think what he's trying to address in a clumsy way is we have to be careful about who comes into our country. And I think everybody generally agrees about that. But that's not what gets played, right? On the same side, I've seen a lot of stuff about Hillary Clinton and how she lauds the, the founder of Planned Parenthood and, and the, you know, the genocidal tendencies of that or whatever. But if you actually read what she said, I don't think that's what she's trying to, to say. I think what she's trying to say is that she appreciates those who pioneer for causes that face a lot of opposition. And what she, what you, she honors about that person who started Planned Parenthood is more the, the fight uphill against forces that were against it. But we're, that doesn't play well on TV and the news. Believers, you and I have got to be people who listen to understand more than get caught up. We seem to have an endless appetite in this country 
for shouting louder and louder and louder about stuff that doesn't get us anywhere, right? So uh, this is all kind of an aside, but let me just say this. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go vote. Believers, do not vote with a shrug. I don't know. I guess there's only two candidates. Got to pick one of them. Okay? Since when was your calling in life to try to go like, I don't know. Let's just review. Who lives inside of you? Okay, so if Jesus lives inside of you, do you think it's like, well, you've got to figure that one out on your own? Since when did we start that? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is going to lead every one of you to the same conclusion, because I think God works through differences in us. So you might vote this one or that one. You might vote for somebody who doesn't have a chance to win. or what. You vote what you believe is the best vote for our country, period. And then this has got to close down, or at least turn down, and we've got to live like God is in control. So let's do that, okay? So as we talk about presidential debate and words mattering, it just kind of gets me there to thinking that's coming up. And for me, I think that we don't want to engage one side of the political debate or another side with words that will expose pride in our souls, self-righteousness, judgmentalness, right? Because words start to expose that. And guess what? Words that you type out on an electronic device and post somewhere do the same thing. They're still words. Just because you're not face-to-face with someone doesn't mean that they don't have a real effect. So recognize that and, and believe in that as we go forward. So anyhow, the point of this is we believe inherently in our soul, that if I talk to someone and I hear what they say, eventually something's going to come out that tells me something about what they believe. And if you've been hurt, you start to think, man, I got to dig in. I got to read between the lines. And sometimes that hurts us. Sometimes it helps us, but sometimes it hurts us to try to dig down into underlying messages and underlying meanings, because we know that someone can say something that gives us a window into what they really think. But in this proverb, what it says is there's three places here we're going to look at today where our words can reveal to us something about what we believe. If you're watching your words, you can start to recognize that I can see what I'm thinking, where my heart is going. Because all of us are human beings and all of us drift away from being settled on the truth. It's one of the reasons that God created this, that God called us to be a church that gathers together. And if you read Hebrews 10, where it talks about don't neglect gathering together, it talks about exhorting one another. In other words, using words to remind us of what we're about, who we serve, our perspective, our hope, all, that's all exhorting one another by words. So it's one of the reasons we get together. Because you go through the week and there's not a lot of forces in this world that you know, help you and build you up spiritually. A lot of them are you know, crushing down on you. We're trying to rip you to shreds. So we get together to kind of reinforce what we believe and, and who we are as believers. But we all drift. We all have that drift in our lives and our words can help us kind of self-diagnose. So we're going to look at three of those places. The first one is in Proverbs 27, verse 1. And I will tell you, I struggle a lot with all of these on a regular basis because there's a balance between managing your life and, and kind of living as a human being and you know, living as a person of faith. So let's start with verse 1. This is something that's actually repeated in the New Testament. It'll probably be pretty familiar to you. Here's what it says. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Do not boast about tomorrow. What are we talking about here? 
Well, what, what the author of Proverbs here is saying to you and I is simply this. Sometimes we talk like we know more than we do. Sometimes we act like we are more sure of something that we should be less sure of. Now, I'm not telling you this is a heinous sin or some giant deal, but it is a very big way that we often trip. Not because we're trying to be evil or wicked or that we should shame someone who isn't perfectly exactly saying what's said here. What Proverbs is asking is that you and I recognize our tendency, a human tendency, to presume on tomorrow. In some sense, we couldn't live if tomorrow was always a blank page and we knew nothing about it. So in some sense, we have some expectation about tomorrow, right? But in another sense, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. And so Proverbs says, do not boast about tomorrow. Why? You don't know what a day may bring. Boasting about tomorrow means talking about what we will do, what we will accomplish, stating our plans as facts. Recognizing the tendency for us to lock in to an idea, to a plan, and without verbally and then often mentally or in my soul, recognizing that my tomorrow is not really up to me. Parts of it are my decisions, my interactions, my choices, but lots of it isn't. And so the intent here is not for Proverbs to make a rule that you better follow, right? Like in James, it says, you should say, Lord willing, we'll do this or that or whatever. You know, we'll say Lord willing. So it's not a a rule. Like every time you say something about tomorrow, you better say Lord willing, or I'm going to be like, aha, you didn't say Lord willing. Because it's not really about the words. It's about what it exposes, about my soul. How often do you and I start to presume on tomorrow? Start to find my hope, my faith, my sense of well-being grounded not in my God, but in my plan or my expectation or my sense of where it's going. When does it show up and how does it show up where my attention drifts from a life of faith in Almighty God to believing or trusting or hoping in my expectation of what tomorrow will be like. Well, here's one of the ways. When tomorrow doesn't turn out like I thought it would, what happens in my soul? If And, and I've been at places on both sides of it, but if tomorrow doesn't turn out like I thought it would, then sometimes I can be like, well, thank you, Lord, for the adventure. But a lot of times I'm like, what is going on? I don't want this. I don't like this. I want something to be different. The difference between those two responses tells me about the way my soul drifts towards having hope or assurance or security in the plans that I make. Other times it shows up when I look ahead and I see something that I think is going to be bad. And I start to react emotionally today to something that I think I won't like tomorrow. Ever done that? What am I doing there? I'm placing my faith because I'm determining my reactions by what I see, by my vision of the future. And I'm acting like it's true, even though it's not yet true. But I'm acting in my soul like it's true. And so I start to interact with it. Oh no, this is going to be hard. This is going to be heavy. And so Proverbs is saying, you've got to recognize we don't know what a day may bring forth. It may turn out exactly like you planned. But it may turn out nothing like you planned. Our trust in the future drifts towards what we expect instead of drifting towards or or staying grounded in our Father in heaven. At the root of this tendency, human beings, is pride. 
we really think we're something. We really trust our own judgment. Maybe you've been hurt by other people and you've learned that you can't trust other people. So your answer is, well, then I'm just going to trust me all the time. I'm going to trust what I think, what I say, right? No. Believer, the answer is not another human being. You've already seen what human beings can do. The answer is trust in an almighty God. But almighty God is invisible and you don't hear him talking. You don't have a sit down face-to-face conversation. And unfortunately, he doesn't lay out his whole plan so you can like, okay, now I know what's coming. Oftentimes there are surprises as we walk this journey of faith. And those surprises are about testing whether I believe in myself, whether I am self-dependent, or whether I live by faith. My nature, your nature, this is very honest and true. I trust what I can see, what I can understand, what I can explain, what I can experience with my senses. That's what I trust, right? And so somebody gets up and does a magic trick. I go, well, what I saw looked like that card appeared out of nowhere or whatever, but hmm, let me see if I can understand how they did it. I immediately turn to understanding. That's how we interact with life. But unfortunately, it pulls us away from living by faith. And so what he says here is that when my words start to boast about tomorrow, it's telling me something about where my soul is drifting to, a place of self-reliance, a place of even pride. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. Are we living like God has tomorrow? I mean, in my soul, am I living like that? Because if God really is God, everything that we sang about this morning, if he's really all of that, and he really is interactive, he's really in control, he really cares about me, he gave his life for me, he has a home in eternity for me, he loves me, he lives in me, he walks through every experience with me, do I believe that he holds tomorrow? And do I believe that I can be at rest in my soul because he holds tomorrow? Or do I need to be tense about what's coming? How's your soul? One of the ways we get there is that we start talking about tomorrow like we know what's coming. And he says, don't boast about tomorrow. I'm not saying you should give up planning and organizing. Those, now, those of you who are planners and organizers, you're like, oh, this is really hard. I'm not saying you can't plan and organize, all right? What I'm saying is you can't believe that your planning and organization is your hope for security. Now, on the other side, some of you are like, I don't care. I fly by the seat of my pants all the time. No big deal. This is not an excuse for you to say, I'm not going to do the planning that I'm called to do. Because oftentimes we are called to look ahead and to make reasonable expectations and plans, to think ahead. We are called to that. We are responsible for making choices that have a vision of the future. But I have to recognize I don't actually know what's coming. Tomorrow can be dramatically different than what I expect. We all know that. We all experience that. I cannot base my life on knowing what will happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day. If I live like that, if I battle this, what happens is I live in a place of pressure. I live in a place of stress. I live in a place of disgruntledness. Because tomorrow doesn't turn out like I expected it to. And I feel disappointed. I feel let down. I feel like God let me down. I feel like God didn't have my back and God wasn't on my side. But God never gave you the promise that tomorrow would turn out like you planned. We impose that on him. Sometimes that's what we think prayer is. Prayer is me imposing my plan on God. You know, God, I'm going to travel here and I pray that everything will work out exactly like I planned for it to. 
Do you want God's blessing on your plan or do you want God's plan? Because God's plan's unfolding in your life. Are you good with that? Or are you in turbulence about that? So the reality for every single one of us is I don't control tomorrow. I don't get to change that reality, but I get to respond to it. How do I respond to that reality? I can go around and around in my mind. Well, tomorrow, what about this? And what about that? And what if this happens? What if it happens? And what would it be like? And what will I feel like? I can go around and around about it. But here's the reason you go around and around about it, because you already know you don't know. So you can just, let's cut to the chase. You don't know what's coming. But you know who's going to be with you. So can I just rest in that? Can that be my answer? Can that be enough? And if it isn't, why not? Why is not God having tomorrow enough for me? What's, do you see how it diagnoses, how it points me back to the, the soul and says, what's going on in here? Why? I thought I believed that God was in charge of the universe and God was sovereign over all and God cared about me and loved me. And now here I am fretting about tomorrow. Why isn't God enough for me? Let, let God, the Spirit, dig down into your soul. Another application before we move on, another application of this truth is, is kind of the opposite. Because I don't know what's coming tomorrow, I shouldn't put off until tomorrow what needs to be done now. Did you hear me on that? I don't know what's coming tomorrow. Some of us are like, we have master's degrees in procrastination and we know how to kick it down the road. Great, that's awesome, that's wonderful. But guess what? You don't know that you'll be able to get it done tomorrow because tomorrow might be a crisis. Now, I'm not suggesting that we pressurize every single day and try to get everything done. And if it's something to do, it's got to get done now. There's, that's no way to live. There's a place for pace and, and putting things where they belong and a plan to move forward. Absolutely. But I am saying some of us, we get to like an unpleasant task that we're supposed to be doing now. And we kind of know we're supposed to be doing it now. And we go, mm, I'd rather not do it now. So I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it somewhere. But you don't know what a day will bring forth. So if you know it needs to get done now, do it now. If you've got the time and opportunity, go ahead and do it now. Don't keep putting off what God has given you to do this day. Otherwise, tomorrow's unexpected events can make it impossible to do what's left over from today. And so when we miss this truth that we don't know what's coming, we get tripped up without even recognizing it. And we become people who are obsessed with planning and control. We become people who are uh, every single day uh, expecting and, and, and looking forward like we know what's coming. We rob ourselves of the satisfaction and the peace that comes from with whatever God, our good Heavenly Father, our good, good Father gives us. We have no satisfaction. We have no joy in it because our expectation was in our plan or our vision instead of our Father. Do not boast about what tomorrow will hold. You don't know what a day will bring. All right, second verse, another way that we trip up in our words. I know this is none of you, so let's just pretend that we're talking about a friend. Okay, so verse 2. Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. Now, today, this is not exactly the same scenario as it was back in the day when this was written. In the day that this was written, they lived in what they called an honor culture. And if you had accolades, if you had accomplished some things, if you had done some things, it was expected that you would trumpet those to people. 
It would be shown in the garb that you wore, in the titles that were yours, in the home that you lived in. It was expected that if you were somebody important, everybody would know it, and everybody would know what you accomplished as that person important. So when we dig stuff up out of the ground, we find these long lists of accomplishments of kings. Right? He conquered this country and this country, and he took this much money from this person, and he defeated this army. It's a long list of accomplishments. So the Bible here in Proverbs is very counterculture. It's very against the grain. Still today, it's very counterculture. But in this way, it was counterculture because it was like, well, don't praise yourself. Don't toot your own horn. Don't trumpet your own accomplishments. Don't declare your greatness and your wonder. Let others praise you and not yourself. Today, it's a little bit socially unacceptable to do that, right? I mean, can you imagine? I guess you probably bumped into a couple people, but, you know, sitting down at dinner with some friends and they're like, let me tell you what I did today. Can you believe how good I am? Listen to what I accomplished. Aren't you impressed? And you'd be like, uh, check. <laughs> Can I get out of here? Because we, it doesn't fit us anymore. It's not, not the way we do it. But we still try to praise ourselves or we try to dig for praise for ourselves, right? We're kind of like, you know, looking for it or expecting it. We have a conversation in our head about how well we did whatever we did and somebody's going to appreciate it and somebody's going to notice it and when nobody does, yikes. Deflated, defeated, destroyed. How could nobody praise me? I'm looking for people to praise me. And if they don't, well, I got to find a way to make them see how good of a person, how great of a person I am. But believers, we should not be people who praise ourselves, who trumpet our own accomplishments. We should not be known as someone who wants to tell everyone how awesome we are. We should not be known in your workplace, in your school, in your home. You should not be a person that needs tons and tons of praise. You're like, well, I don't need a ton of praise. I just need a little bit of praise. Maybe your words are trying to get at something that you've been blinded to. That you're somebody who looks for people to recognize the good that you do in order for you to feel like your good mattered. Instead of recognizing that you did it as unto the Lord and God saw it and God called you to it and God will use it and that's enough for me. But we start to get our eyes on other people and what they think of us. And we try to you know, find a way for them to see how good of a person. Because we'd like to be appreciated. It's nice to be appreciated. There's some power in thankfulness and in gratitude. But you notice your efforts more than other people notice your efforts. Have you ever noticed that? You are well aware of the sacrifices that you have made. And you know the good intent behind them. And other people don't seem to. What's up with that? Because they're over there knowing their good works and their good intentions and they're all aware of that, wondering why nobody else sees their stuff. So we all live self-involved. We all live wondering when anybody's going to you know, call out how good of a person I am and trying to like fish for it, look for it. Whether we're actively fishing for it or whether we just have our radar up, we're out there wondering when someone is going to praise me. And so the Bible says, let a stranger... An outsider praise you because self-praise is empty. It rings untrue. It rings unreliable to other people. It destroys really our abilities to be instruments of praise to God because we're trying to bring the praise to who? It's hard for me to go, now praise me. Oh, by the way, praise God too. If I have praise I'm trying to pull towards me, it's difficult for me to reflect. It's difficult for me to direct So if I'm going to be a believer, 
where people can recognize the hand of God in this world, I've got to be a believer who's not looking for, to be a magnet for praise. And when praise comes my way, I can take the appreciation without taking it to heart. Do you know what I mean? Kind of like the same thing with the criticism. I can take the criticism without taking it to heart. In other words, what someone thinks of me doesn't define me. And if you appreciated something that I did and you said thanks to me, I'll say that's a wonderful thing. But most of the time, what I want to do is say, well, praise the Lord. That's, to me, that's not an empty phrase. It is, I'm glad that God did something through me for you. That's what I'm trying to say. You with me? So now other people are like, well, that's just a churchy phrase and it doesn't really mean anything. Yes, it does. Here's what it means. God is providing your needs. Sometimes through me, sometimes through someone else. Praise the Lord. God is the one doing it for you, right? And I, it can get, because it's trite and because it's just something I say all the time, it can get empty, but I don't want it to be empty. I want it to be something that's full of meaning and purpose, something that keeps us from trying to pull praise to me. And so when I feel insecure, when I feel ignored, when I feel invisible, I get this pressure and I try to present myself better by finding some way to come off in a praiseworthy way. But what I'm called to is a life of faith. I'm called to a different way of looking at my life, the value of my life and my actions, a a way of looking at it through faith. Does that make sense? When I don't do that, I live frustrated with people. I live um, kind of like the conversation in my head. By the way, praising yourself can happen in your own head too. It doesn't have to happen out loud, right? So if the conversation in your head is like, I'm so much better than that person. I don't know why everybody likes them. I'm the one who's always doing all the work. If that's the conversation in your head, then this is for you. Just because it's not coming out of your mouth doesn't mean you're not praising yourself. And if you are, what happens is you live very, very on edge. You live very short-tempered, very impatient with other people, very judgmental, very bitter, because I'm looking at other people that I believe now are less than me because I've had this conversation of self-praise going on in my head. And then that shows up in the conversations that I have out loud with them. All right, third thing. Let's go down. This is a tough, this is a really tough one. Verses five and six. Here's what it says. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. All right, this is tough. And and I know there are, I don't never met a person in my life who actually loves conflict. There are people who enjoy meaningless conflict. They like fighting and debating or whatever, but they don't really like the uncomfortableness of, I don't know where this is going. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if this person's going to hate me or reject. They don't, people don't like that. People hate conflict in general. Now, in both of these verses, something is presumed to be wrong. Something is done wrong or someone's going a wrong way. The contrast in these verses is between how someone responds to that situation, how someone addresses that situation. The reality for every single one of us is that we are fallible people. There is not one perfect person here. Every single one of us has a ton of experience in blowing it and making mistakes and messes of our life, right? Like, if, if there were degrees, if it was like, you know, have you graduated elementary school in making a mess, or high school, or do you have your doctorate in it, most of us would be at the doctorate level, because we've plenty of experience in making messes, right? We are well-versed in how to blow it. So it should be not that surprising that often we're blowing it, and we need people around us to tell us, you're blowing it. But we're stunned when somebody does, Right? 
Like, if I'm here and somebody else blows it, I'm like, oh no. Do I say something? Do I not say something? I don't know what to do. Or if someone comes to me and says, man, I just don't really appreciate that. You're like, wait a minute, what? What are you talking about? How can you be so harsh? How can you be so unfair? It's like this big surprise that, that, that you blew it. Like, I blow it every day, don't you? So why is it so stunning that we might need the help of a community to, to, to mold us and shape us and get us on, on path? As a matter of fact, it's even demonstrated in the way God created homes, right? God created you know, a home to be a mom and a dad, raising kids so that they could call them on their mistakes as they grow up. If your job as a parent is to keep your kids from mistakes, you, you've missed it. Your job is not to keep them from mistakes. Your job is to help them grow through their mistakes, to learn from their mistakes, right? Sometimes we're like, this high pressure in the home of like, never make a mistake. When that's ridiculous. Some of the biggest lessons I've learned in life are from when I've really, really blown it, right? How about you? So I'm not trying to stop them from making mistakes. I'm trying to help them learn how to grow from mistakes and how to like turn away from things they've already learned from so they don't repeat mistakes. I'd like that to happen, wouldn't you? So that's what we're doing as we parent. We're trying to confront them. So we see this in, in just you know, the way we're born into a, a family and a home and God's designed for that. But we're unwilling or unable or uncomfortable with speaking into others who are off track. So I notice that there's somebody out there that's doing something wrong, and I feel this tension. They're going the wrong way. What will I say about it? How will I respond to that? Will I tell them the truth, or will I just spout out some pleasantry to keep the peace? What will I do about that? And you probably face that. There's probably a situation in your life right now where you're in that tension, you're in that middle ground of I know this is a problem and I don't know if I should address it or not. I'm going to just pull that apart a little bit in these last couple of minutes. But on the other side, if you were off track and didn't realize it or did realize it, how would you receive someone coming to you and saying, you're off track, you can't do this, this is the wrong way to go? That's kind of where Proverbs challenges us today. None of us really like that, that scenario, that, that feeling, we don't like people that we care about to be upset with us. We don't like to be the bad guy. We don't want to endure the walk of tension of a hard conversation. I don't know what it's going to happen. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know how they're going to react. We don't like that. It could be, like I said, it could be at your, your place of employment. It could be in school. It could be in a marriage. It could be in a friendship. It could be in your parenting. It's all, all around us all the time, these tense moments. And walking that tension is hard. But we have to have the courage to say what we are called to say if we care about people. So here's what I'm asking you today. You've got all this discomfort about it. And then you've got this calling that says a friend wounds in a faithful way. Do, am, I, am I okay with living over here in the tension and responding to the tension, or am I willing to respond to the truth? Now, I'm not saying that every person in your life, when you see them mess up, you're supposed to be the police and go, hey, that was wrong. Hey, that was wrong. The Bible talks about love covers a multitude of sins. And in every relationship, there is, there's plenty of room for grace. What I'm saying is, if the Spirit of God is knocking at your heart's door to talk to someone, and it keeps coming up and coming up and coming up, and it's very obvious this is yours, would you be willing to lay aside your discomfort with it 
and walk independence into a conversation you wish you didn't have to have? Would you care about someone enough to do that or not? Because that's what we're getting challenged with here. A friend who loves must rebuke, must wound. The idea is there's concern, you know, hidden love, right? Over here, there's concern on both sides, but one person is willing to speak it, the other person is not. Which person are you? And, the, and what it says is one is better than the other. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. The hidden love is not a bad thing, but it's better to have open rebuke. It means that love speaks out. It doesn't hide from problems or pretend there are no problems. Rebuke here is not a criticism meant to tear down or minimize a person. Rebuke here is not to go in and devastate them, to, to throw their work away like it's meaningless, to question their motivations Rebuke here is an expression of someone who sees an issue, brings light to it with the intention of helping to fix it. Hey, I notice you're you're in a bad way here. What can I do to help you with that? Let me put my arm around you. Let's walk this path together. How can we go forward from here? That's rebuke. We take rebuke as this harsh word that's just me over here on the high mountain of godliness pointing down at those sinners, rebuking them for their sin. What's wrong with this picture? I'm not on a mountain. And I don't have the standing to just judge, do I? But I do have the calling as a friend to go up to someone and say, you know you're messing up here, right? So what are we going to do? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? What can I do? Is there anything I can do? Because I know I got my own stuff, so I know you got your stuff, but I see this and I want to be there for you. We've got to find a way to walk into those conversations because it says a friend wounds but in a way that can be trusted. A friend wounds you because they care so much about you, they're willing to take the risk and to speak to you about it. They say something that will help you and make your life better. There are many times where as a pastor, I don't want to have to say what I'm going to have to say to you. But I got to say it. Because why? I care about you. So I want people to know, if you come talk to me, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to try to be flippant about it. I'm not going to try to devastate you, but I am going to try to find a way to tell you the truth and let you respond to it. Not in a way that says if you don't respond to the truth, you're a loser because I've not responded to the truth many times. But in a way that says, here's the truth. You see it, right? So where are you going to go? What choice are you going to make? What direction are you going to head in? On the other side, you've got this enemy multiplying kisses. Oh, you're wonderful. You're wonderful. Sometimes today, I get really concerned about the next generation of kids because parents love to multiply kisses. And the Bible says, you're an enemy when you do this. You're destroying them. Oh, my child's wonderful. Everything they do is wonderful. They're just great. They're the best student in their class and they're the favorite of their teacher and they're wonderful and they're wonderful. And then the kids grow up and everything's wonderful. They don't have any problems. They've never faced any stress in their life. Everything they do is perfect. It's great, it's great, it's great. And you know what it sounds like? So hollow, so thin. Nobody buys it, not even your kids. So why do we waste the breath? We know better, right? The the truthometer keeps pegging over on the error, wrong, lie side, right? So all of your words, all of your encouragement doesn't do anything because it's not honest. A friend wounds faithfully, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I'm not saying there's not room for pleasantry. I'm saying if there's something that you need to say, say it. 
Because a person who loves you is willing to say the hard thing to you. So let's just quickly look at this before we kind of close today. How do you know if it's my spot to say something? You're probably not supposed to go to the grocery store this afternoon and see somebody who curses and walk over to them and go, man, I care about you and that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> Why not? Right? A friend, if I'm going to be a friend, if, I, if Jesus loves the world and I love them, I'm going to point out their sin, right? Wrong. And you know that inherently, right? So what you've got to look at is what's the context of this relationship? What, what is the, the, the whole like scenario of this? What should I say? When should I say it? How much should I say? Am I more concerned with getting it off my chest or with their well-being? Don't ever go to someone because you're so fed up that you just can't take it anymore. That's not about them. You're not a friend. You go to someone because you're so concerned about them that you can't wait anymore. I'm going to go talk to you, Okay. And then you look at what role has God given me in their life? Parents, if your children are blowing it, it is your role to say, I don't think this is a good thing. Now, when they get older and they go into adults, it's a different role, isn't it? So now I have an advisory role versus an accountability role or whatever, and I have to be more discerning in some of those things. But I'm looking at what's my role? How close am I to this person? How open have we been with each other? And is God prompting this? So the problem is I get so responsive to the discomfort that I tune out the Spirit of God. And what I've got to do is tune out the discomfort and let God speak to me and let God convince me if it's time to go have this conversation. So spouses, if your spouse needs confrontation, chances are pretty high that you should be a part of that. Right? No? Yes? This is yes. This is no. Yeah. Because you're their spouse. Right? So if it's a dear friend, if it's so, you know the difference between a context where I need to say this and a context where I don't. Trust that and let God lead you in it because we're not going to be people who multiply kisses. We're going to be people that bring wounds that heal. There are wounds that bring healing and there are wounds that pretend to heal. Let's not be people who pretend. Let's be people who are people of the truth. So our words can tell us a lot. We're going to close with a song today that talks about God's words. God said a lot to us, right? So we can follow his example in the way that he gives and uses words. And we're going to kind of let that song close us and and kind of ask us to follow his example. So as they get ready to do that, let me just ask you this. What are your words showing you about where your battles are? What are your words saying to you? Where does God need to set a guard over your mouth? Uh, Psalm 141.3 says, set a guard over my lips. Does God need to set a guard there for you about your words? Maybe you're presuming on God for tomorrow and you need to watch your words because they're exposing how quickly you drift that direction. Maybe you're feeling unappreciated and, and you're having a conversation that wants to praise yourself or you're looking for praise for other people and you just can't seem to get it. You need to watch your words. And maybe Someone's coming your way or, or you need to be going someone's way with words of wounding for the sake of healing. Will you be willing to speak words when they need to be spoken? I pray that you will follow the example of God in using words in the best way possible.